but she has her 30th birthday is in February and she has already booked a place and she said it's wait she booked a place that's all disco and she's like we are going all out everyone has to wear disco like attire and everything so that's, it's gonna be full wait, on and 60, you're going 70. to this yeah. are you going yeah, yeah. <gasps> we need pictures I know, we need- <laughs> <laughs> welcome to talking underwater one water one podcast I'm Bob Crossan, Editorial Director of the Endeavor Business Media Water Group. I am Katie Johns, Editor-in-Chief of Stormwater Solutions. I'm Mandy Crispin, Editor-in-Chief of Waterworld. And in this episode of Talking Underwater, we will talk about the recent announcement from Radhika Fox that she is leaving the Office of Water in February, the readoption of an emergency regulation for minimum flow of some rivers in California, the Illinois EPA funding availability and how you can apply if it applies to you, and the entrance of Aqualia into the U.S. market. Finally, our interview this episode is with Andy Hanasek. He is the senior editor for Food Processing, a business-to-business brand covering the food processing industry, which is part of Endeavor Business Media, just like Talking Underwater and our associated brands, Waterworld, Wastewater Digest, and Stormwater Solutions. We talked with him about trends in food processing related to water, and also larger trends that overlap with our industry, such as sustainability, decarbonization, and water reuse. But first, some news. EPA Assistant Administrator to the Office of Water, Radhika Fox, has announced that she will leave her position at the agency at the end of February 2024. Fox was the first woman of color and woman of Asian American heritage to lead the Office of Water. She was sworn into the position in February 2021, and in her time with the agency, she has led the office through its efforts to establish a PFAS maximum contaminant level as part of a broader PFAS strategic roadmap for which she also played a very important role. Fox has also championed the Get the Lead Out initiative and was a critical supporter and factor in getting the funding for water into the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, commonly referred to as the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law. Prior to her role at the EPA, she was the CEO of the U.S. Water Alliance, and she also worked for the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission prior to that. Her resume is very long, and she's a very important figure, I think, in the water industry. So it is a shame to see her leave the Office of Water, but I am interested to see where she will go next. With that, Katie, would you like to talk about the California State Water Resources Control Board news and those minimum flow requirements? Yes, thank you. So uh, California State Water Resources Control Board announced in December that it has readopted an emergency regulation that establishes minimum flow requirements for the Scott and Shoster Rivers. The regulation will ensure supplies for human health and livestock needs, protect imperiled fish, and encourage voluntary water use reduction. The rivers are both key tributaries to the Klamath River and have been experiencing prolonged impacts of drought for multiple years. The rivers are crucial water sources for the Siskiyou County and other surrounding tribes and communities, and I apologize if I pronounced that incorrectly. Precipitation in the Klamath watershed over the previous year was above average, It still failed to reach the record-breaking levels observed in other parts of the state, though. Flows in both rivers dropped below drought protection levels set by the State Water Board in 2001 and 2022. And with that, I will pass it over to Mandy. Thanks, Katie. On December 18, 2023, the Illinois Environmental Protection Agency announced $750,000 of grant funding available for development and completion of 
energy efficiency projects at drinking water treatment plants. Awards will range from $20,000 to $500,000. Funding for this program is provided by the U.S. Department of Energy and State Energy Program, with supplemental funding available through the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. The projects must reduce the amount of energy consumed by water treatment operations and must be identified in an energy efficiency assessment completed within the past five years, the press release stated. It also notes the Illinois EPA works with the Smart Energy Design Assistance Center and the Illinois Sustainable Technology Center to help municipalities get no-cost energy usage assessments. Applications will undergo a comprehensive merit-based review. The detailed scoring factors are outlined within the application. It's important to note additional points will be given to applications serving projects in an Illinois EPA Office of Environmental Justice Area of Concern and or for projects located in municipally owned electric utilities or electric cooperatives. Matching is required, but at different rates, 10% within environmental justice areas of concern and 20% outside of those areas. Applications are due February 2nd, 2024 by 5 p.m. Resources to help fill out the application are available on its webpage, linked in the show notes, as well as contact information if you have questions. Turning attention south, on September 1st, 2023, Aqualia, the fourth largest water company in Europe, measuring by population served, and ninth largest in the world, announced having acquired a controlling stake in a Houston-area water management company, Municipal District Services, LLC, marking its entry into the United States market with plans to grow its operations in the U.S. MDS manages the end-to-end water cycle for more than 364,000 people on the outskirts of Houston, and as such is the second largest provider of water, wastewater, and stormwater services in the Houston area for municipal utility districts, the press release states. I think it says a lot about population growth and the ability to keep up with supplying more and more people with water if such a large company chose to start there. Waterworld published an article on January 3rd of this year about this very issue. According to a press release from The U.S. Census Bureau in May 2023, out of the list of the nine fastest growing cities in the South, six were in Texas, and out of the country's 15 most populous cities, five are in Texas. But this isn't just a Texas thing. Many cities are strategizing about how to supply water to growing populations amidst aging infrastructure challenges, which brings the question to rehab or replace aging pipes. So to find out what the Houston Public Works Department is doing for its city and surrounding area to ensure water delivery, interested listeners can read the piece at the link in the show notes. Great. Thank you, Mandy. And with that, we'll turn our attention to our interview with Andy Hanasek. He is senior editor for food processing, and we talked about all types of trends going on in the food processing industry related to water, as well as the larger trends that overlap with our industry. So now we're here with Andy. Thank you so much for taking the time, Andy. We appreciate it. Uh, Your work precedes you in the food processing sector. So we're interested to hear more about, you know, what's going on in that world when it comes to water and just in general trends that you're seeing. So thanks for being here. 
Thanks, Bob, and I'm glad to hear that something's preceding me without uh, leaving a, 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 an interesting taste in people's mouths about wanting to talk to me. So that's good to hear, and I appreciate the <laughs> I appreciate the accolades. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess let's start there with the water side of things. I mean, how are food processors viewing water use in their facilities these days? Is this a major consideration for them? I imagine out west especially, it's a big deal. But what are you hearing when it comes to water in these facilities? Yeah, I think, you know, we I participated in that Day Without Water uh, podcast episode, I think you guys did uh, a few months ago. And and then in that, I mentioned, you know, in the food industry and beverage industry, aside from the fact that water in general is part of so many products, you know, as an ingredient, um, water usage in the plants and in the process, in the operations is crucial. So, for years, part of the sustainability efforts, the environmentally friendly efforts that a lot of these food and beverage manufacturers have undertaken to be better to the environment, the communities they're in, and the globe in general, uh, have revolved around energy use and water usage, you know, minimizing overuse, right? Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say that, uh, you know, the food and beverage industry and the meat and poultry industry, which is where my background lies, I think they often get somewhat of a bad rap in terms of people, consumers, general consumers and consumer media tend to think that they just burn through resources without a care. And, you know, you mm -hmm. go into <laughs> you go into the whole talk about cow, cow farts and how those things are creating methane and you know, mm -hmm. all that stuff. I think there's a lot of misdirection and, and misunderstanding that goes on. I think many of the food and beverage processors out there are super concerned about water use. Um, they get charged for water use. It's not mm -hmm. like they just, you know, put a pipe in a river and suck the water up like a vacuum. So it, it it affects their bottom line. So I think they've always been concerned about it. And now over the last, I don't know, how many decades where conservation of water and resources, especially as you mentioned out West, uh, have become very, very crucial social situations and social concerns. I think the food and beverage industry has been very keen on trying to find ways to reduce the use of their water. Again, you, you can't, it, it's hard to replace water as an ingredient in a product, mm -hmm. but in terms of, you know, certain food processing operations really do need water to clean, to, uh, you know, move product along to, or, you know, just to, to process any of this, any of these products. Again, going back to the meat and poultry industry, it takes a lot of water to, to just make the products, you know, there's um, there's numerous ways in which water is used, whether it be mm -hmm. in ovens and, and heating, you know, mm -hmm. operations, thing cooking and things like that. Um, there's water jet portioners out there where you're cutting meat and and chicken, particularly or poultry, particularly seafood with not knives, but a high speed jet of water slicing through the product. So, you know, that water 
is you can't put that and then go recycle it into the drinking fountains in the plant you have to treat it because but you know it's touching raw products so it's not like you can reuse that that easily um mm-hmm. out there so i think that's where you're seeing a lot of the water use and water conservation um happening is where a lot of these plants are looking at where can we reuse some of this water how can we reuse some of this water and and that's been a big um at least in my time over the last decade or two that i've been following especially meat and poultry plants a big uh a big attempt by a lot of these plants to to really hone in on how they can not constantly pull from the the primary resource the original source of water yeah so what I'm hearing from you in terms of kind of the evolution over time, it's become something that they're more cognizant than ever before about their water use because they see the direct line to their – like like you said, it's a bottom line thing for them, right? But then there's also the social pressures that are involved in that, and that's driving some things. And then technology, the fact that there's technologies using this water for different purposes than was originally uh, planned maybe 30 years ago where they didn't have water cutting the product, right? So um, it sounds like there's a lot of different factors that are evolving that need and that that focus. And you did mention the water use and recovery side of things. I Obviously, in the in the municipal water and wastewater space, this is becoming a much bigger concern, especially out west, where drinking water systems are trying to find a new other avenues to diversify their water supply, so to speak, and allow allow for them to provide to their customers without like tapping into the same thing every single time because the Colorado River Basin only only has so much water to give to all those states. Um, so yeah, I guess in terms of water reuse and recovery, how are food processors looking at that? What are some of the evolutions or stages that you've seen and witnessed over the past uh, decade or two when it comes to these food processing plants and trying to recover their water? Yeah, there's been some really interesting things over the many years, and um, I'll just I'll lay, I'll list some. And for for some of them, I'm not going to remember the company even, so I'll just leave the companies out in most cases. But there's very very interesting things that I've seen over years you know i've seen a a lot of and and again much of this goes to meat and poultry plants more than Mm -hmm. more so than food and beverage overall just because that's where my past experience lies but um i remember going to a plant where they were taking the some of the processed water and you know cleaning it up a little bit you know obviously you can't get it clean to where it's drinkable or anything like that but they were using some of that recycled water if you will and again i might not be getting it exactly right because this was about 10 years ago but things like taking some of that processed water cleaning it up really well and feeding it into the toilets somehow to flush the toilets Mm -hmm. or something like that you know where you're not going to have anyone drinking the water now you know again i know plumbing all ties in somehow you know so again that may not be exactly what the uh -hmm. where the line went but they're using it for non-food contact, non-human contact mm-hmm. operations. One of the really cool double whammy things that I've seen at a couple different facilities, and again, this is probably now not all that innovative per se, because I've seen it in a lot of places, is taking the the process water that you're using to, um, you know, as a temperature buffer, right? So, 
you're using it to 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 keep ovens at a at a, mm. a balanced temperature across the entire oven, right? So our green plant of the year just recently is doing something like this where, you know, the oven has I mean, every almost all of these ovens have a jacket on the outside that is filled with clean, fresh water that basically helps eat, keep the oven heating evenly. So there's no hot mm. or fewer hot spots and cold spots, right? So that water then absorbs a lot of that heat. And when it's done, when it gets to a certain temperature, they have to drain it out and start over. They need cold water again, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in order to 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 regulate that heat. Well, the green plant of the year that we just visited and gave out, they're taking that heated up clean water because it doesn't touch the product. It's in a jacket mm-hmm. outside the, the actual cook uh, area. And they're taking that and pulling and pulling the heat off of that water to heat other areas, you know, to heat the, Mm. to use as sanitation water, for example, or something like that. So they're not just saving on the water use because they're not, you know, just flushing that hot water down the drain. They're pulling out the heat from the water uh, and saving on energy use because then they don't have to Mm. fire their boilers as much. And and that's where they end up putting it is into the, into the, um, the plant operations area where Mm. they need the hot water and it doesn't need to be heated up as much because it's already coming in warm. So I've seen that as well. Um, and and I kind of got started to get a little mixed up because one of the things I was going to mention was I've seen um, plants over time use that hot, hot water from the ovens and the cooking operations be reserved and held and kept at temperature and then fed into the sanitation shift where they need hot water as well. But again, you're saving on energy as well as water use, because now if the water comes into that sanitation holding tank at 100 degrees or whatever, just throwing a number Mm -hmm. out there, and you've got to get it up to 120, it's already at 100 as opposed to coming in from the municipality at what 40 whatever degrees it is so you're saving on energy use as well as water use yeah just optimizing every data point if you can capture all of them it may as well right um i do think that's really fascinating though the the idea of we have to use this water at a certain temperature where else in our process do we need water at that temperature that we can feed that into that is still safe for whatever purpose it is? That's a really yeah, because then you only have to you only have to heat the water the one time. It's a huge energy savings. Um, that's one of the bit most like difficult parts I imagine of some of these facilities is just heating things over and over again requires so much energy. Um, and so if you can reduce the number of times that you have to do it or the amount of time it takes to get to that temperature because you've already done something prior, that's a huge gain. For sure. For sure. And in terms of, you know, if you, you know, with food and beverage, obviously food safety and food contact surfaces and food contact water, things like that, obviously that ends up being a, uh, you know, a family feud, triple X kind of thing. You know, once you, mm-hmm. once the water touches the food or touches the food contact surface, you've got to treat it completely differently. Um, mm-hmm. But if you can, if you can, you know, 
contain that water in a closed system, you know, realistically, you think about, if you think about, and I, I haven't necessarily seen this per se anywhere, but, you know, just going to my, the cooking, cooling kind of process, right? And just thinking outside the box here, you can, if there's a way to close that system, you know, think about how often you can use that water in a closed system, kind of like in our homes, if you have a boiler system, heat, you know, just mm-hmm. recycling it through, right? You go, you, you, it, it heats up in the ovens, you process it over to, you know, something that needs heat. And once it uses the heat, it's cooled off. You go send the water back to the oven, it heats up. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about how much water you could save if you just have this closed system where it's the water inside is constantly heating and cooling and heating and cooling. I guess it would be even like an antifreeze system in a car, right? You know, heating mm-hmm. and cooling, heating and cooling. Um, just it, the water savings there have got to be insane. It's, it's yeah. great. But one of the other real quick things I was going to say that our um, our Green Plan of the Year did on in terms of water reuse, and again, it was pretty interesting. I hadn't heard of it elsewhere. It doesn't mean it's not happening elsewhere. Is uh, for like boiler blowdowns. I'm not sure how familiar you are with with that. So when you have you know these these uh, boilers and things like that, the hard water that comes in it leaves the uh, the minerals and everything. The residue behind and you have to occasionally do a high pressure blowdown of the system basically mm-hmm. blow the water out get rid of all the minerals and stuff um our green plant of the year installed a reverse osmosis system that softens that water so much that they were able to basically reduce their water use reduce their blowdowns significantly i forgot the exact wow. percentage but it was insane it was like 90% or some crazy number like that to where they're not needing to constantly waste that water and the blowdowns. Cause once you do the blowdown, the water's gone, you know, you can't mm-hmm. use it. So it's not only obviously helping with the li- life of the machinery, the boilers, the ammonia uh, systems and everything, but it's, you know, saving on water use because mm-hmm. they're not having to replenish the entire system all the way when it comes to blowdowns i'm i'm most familiar i think with it in terms of like kind of electric utilities and they have their cooling towers that also need to be blown down because they run into the basically the same problem of like the hardness of the water and the, the minerals and all of that and they have to clean it all out um so I, I do know that that is an area where even especially in the like electric world they try and optimize their water use a lot there so it makes sense that you would have a very similar thing you'd have to do in these processing plants putting ro at it first my first thought on that too is that i think for many years ro probably felt a little cost prohibitive for some of these utilities it was just too expensive for them to do because you do have to get a certain amount of pressure to push the water through and so there's a lot of considerations to make but the improvements to RO over the years, the reject rates are so much better than they were 20, 10, 20 years ago. Um, so it makes sense to me now that you're seeing it more commercially viable in some of these installations where they are really way more concerned about the the dollar figures for every element of their process. So that's a, that was my first thought was like, wow, RO going into those plants could be because those memories are just 
considerably cheaper now. Materials are changing and that are improving things too. So lots of advancements in that world. What are you hearing in terms of trends in general in your industry? So not necessarily directly related to water, but what what are some of the things that you're hearing from these these processing plants? What are they concerned with and what's driving their like thought leaders' minds and the businesses decisions that they're making? Yeah, no, that's it's been it's been an interesting ride for the food and beverage industry over the last year plus and really since since the pandemic. I mean, it's been a roller coaster basically is is what and it's still <laughs> a roller coaster right now. It, it, you know, we we just wrote our um outlook for 2024 and I mean, it's not a rerun, but it's not too different thematically from the 2023 outlook uh except that I think this year, the industry is coming out of, you know, a cave of sorts because 2023 just hammered so many people in the industry with inflation, supply mm-hmm. chain issues just clobbered everybody. Um, you know, there were some winners uh, here and there. It wasn't gloom and doom across the board. And what was interesting in 2023 was inflation kept rising and food prices as we all know we go to the grocery store we know we're all spending much more on our grocery trips than we used to but people still kept buying food and obviously we need food so they're going to keep buying food but they kept buying food almost in the same ways that they were doing it pre-inflation and so the industry really didn't have a lot of reason to kind of change too much of what they were doing around the inflation stuff. They, you know, they kept Mm -hmm. raising prices, people kept buying. So not necessarily keep raising prices, but we can keep, we don't have to worry about it. Well, toward the end of the year and here at the turn of the calendar, uh, consumers are finally starting to push back. So at the same time, inflation is not going away, but it's stabilizing. It's it's mm-hmm. not a deflationary environment. And our experts, the experts we talk to, think that that will lead to maybe some more price promotion type things here in 24. And as you know, the, the as the food processors respond to consumers kind of finally pushing back on the prices. Most of the experts we talk to think volumes will go up a little bit, and that's that's good news um, in a sense. But you know, the other thing is too the supply chain issues that have really hurt the industry have have eased quite a bit. So things are people are able to get product to stores and to restaurants. So consumers aren't going to have to you know worry about prices going up for those reasons. But one of the interesting things that I'm curious to see if it continues is in this kind of price, high price environment where, you know, we're going out and say buying uh, meals for our families or ourselves, you know, usually people who are on tighter budgets will start to trade down to high value, low price items you know, maybe even some private label type things. And private label did do pretty well at the beginning of last year, but started to slow uh, toward the end of the year, according to the people I've talked to. But what's interesting is that low price, high value items, the kind of center of the store items, those did pretty well in 23. And it'll be interesting to see how those do. But the high price, high value items. So, you know, Bob, if you're going to go out and treat yourself, 
you're going to go to the best steakhouse and you're going to spend and you're not going to cut back on that. That didn't really suffer too much. People, you know, kind of spoiled themselves when it came to food and beverage. They they viewed value in two different kind of spheres, value as a price value, you know, your your price per unit, if you will. How many meals can I get out of this? Cut a cut of meat or cut of pork or whatever it is, or how many meals can I get out of this giant bag salad or whatever mm-hmm. it is um, for that price? And then the other side of the spectrum is, I don't care how many meals I get out of this. <laughs> I want to enjoy this meal, and this is a celebratory time. So I'm going to spend because the value is in the quality and the experience, right? Mm-hmm. The uh, the little luxuries, I think one of my experts called it. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how those things how those things progress if that bifurcation kind of stays. Sustainability is still going to drive operations. Um, labor is still just killing the industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's so hard to find workers to work in these plants, to work out, you know, to to show up and stay in the industry. Some processors more than others because some plants are much colder than others and who wants to work mm-hmm. in that. And all of this obviously uh, rolls right back into food safety. That's the one thing that keeps processors up at night. They don't want recalls. They don't want people getting sick or mm-hmm. dying, God forbid, from product because of some sort of mistake or error. Well, I'm glad you brought up inflation because it is something that I think is impacting kind of every industry, but in different ways. Obviously, for yours, there's like this multiple, this multi-factored element of it where the in- inflation is probably impacting the purchasing decisions for things and equipment at the plant, but it's also impacting the downstream effect of what you can sell for and who can purchase it. So it's like they're getting squeezed on both sides with the inflation, it sounds like, for you, for you all. Whereas like for water and wastewater – that inflation does impact the customer because then it impacts how much they can spend on their water bills and their sewer bills. And they have to like account for that. So there's that element of it. But then on the, in terms of equipment, just the cost of raw materials has gone up so much. So trying to do any equipment purchases or to construct buildings, like they may have budgeted three years ago for what they wanted to do with their plant today. And they need 10% more now. <laughs> it's it's just so different. It's such a different world. Um, and then in terms of sustainability, that's all obviously becoming a very big thing in the water industry now. There's a, a, a couple big thought leaders, namely like Zy- companies like Xylem that are going to these large global events where it's talking about greenhouse gas emissions and decarbonization. The understanding right now is that water and wastewater facilities contribute 3% to total greenhouse gas emissions across the globe. And so the thinking is if we can bring that down 0.5% or 1% by having cleaner technologies in all these facilities, we'll be doing our part in the grand scheme of everything. Um, So there is this move toward that as well. And you see that with water reuse becoming a a popular thing in terms of the wastewater they're capturing the gas from those things you mentioned methane earlier from the, the the cows and stuff like that capturing that gas and using that for combined heat and power or other things like that so it seems like there's even though they're different uh use cases or different focuses of where that attention on that topic is going those trends still exist across our marketplaces do you do, do you agree with that 
Oh yeah, for sure. And and you mentioned the supply chain and the equipment, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that has been enormous Huge. here in the food industry. I mean, just the lead time on getting new mm-hmm. equipment, just based on the the raw materials, the steel, the stainless steel, et cetera, all the parts and pieces, the electronics that go into some of these. Yeah, the the food industry has had its fair share of uh, issues there, so, you know, and and. The the interesting thing is, too, you know, they're still building plants, they're still adding lines, mm-hmm. you know, so it's a matter of, you know, that supply chain easing or hang up easing as well. And we, we did our manufacturing survey, too, and, and it seems like getting equipment uh, sourced and delivered, you know, built and delivered to them is less of a problem than it was but it still is an issue uh the lead times are are crazy and then you know you mentioned the sustainability in the wastewater too it's for a long time for a long time several years ago i was going to quite a few meat plants where they were building their own wastewater facilities on Mm -hmm. site and that was you know at that point i had not really been exposed to the whole that whole side of the plant operations uh, side. So it was very, very cool to kind of learn about those things. And what I've seen over the many years, too, is, and, you know, it obviously varies plant to plant, but I went to a gigantic, one of the mega beef processing plants out in the Great Plains, and they had built a a wastewater treatment plant on their grounds. Mm -hmm. And I went there and I'm like, wow, you know, this is huge it's like almost it's bigger than the plant and oh yeah they were capturing the methane like you said off of the lagoon they had a a big old balloon cover and for several years it seemed like at least in meat and poultry um a lot of plants were building those things and now Mm -hmm. it's i'm not saying that they aren't doing it anymore but maybe it's just not making headlines in terms of Mm -hmm. sending out pr about it like it's almost you know the the standard procedure at this point but what's been interesting too is to see how the technology the equipment whatever it is must be getting more efficient and better because it seems like these facilities on the plant grounds plant grounds in the processing space are getting smaller they're taking up small less space and it's like amazing to see how this technology is is improving and getting more efficient and able to be more contained because so many of these meat plants, many of them are way outside. Nobody wants to live by a meat plant. They are in metro areas and they're landlocked. Mm-hmm. So it's not like they can just add, you know, footprint and things like that. So it's cool to see that part of the industry advancing to where, you know, maybe it's offering solutions to processors who who need them, you know. So um, and with uh, the new effluent guidelines coming out from EPA on meat and poultry plants, that's definitely going to be something with some of these small processors that are in towns and cities that they're really going to need some help with is the technology, affordable mm-hmm. technology that also fits within what they have to meet those meet those guidelines. Yeah. Well, the, the, that's just fascinating to hear because all the things that you just described of the challenges for some of these plants, the footprint size, also having to be far away from everything, same thing happens for water wastewater, right? So the same thing happens. And 
the footprint has been a really big issue because a lot of these facilities, these municipal ones, they only have the municipal land that they have available. And so they have to find small footprint things that fit there. So there's been huge advancements in that over the past uh, several years. I know that membrane bioreactors, for example, they are way more compact and way more affordable than they've ever been before. So that's becoming a very big popular option in the wastewater market. Um, a lot of folks are getting rid of their lagoons or repurposing their lagoons for stormwater capture now because the lagoon treatment doesn't get their total phosphorus and total nitrogen where it needs to be for regulatory compliance, depending on the state that they're in. So they're decommissioning those and getting a different style of treatment that's also going into a smaller footprint and then using those lagoons for stormwater capture and using that water for irrigation or what have you, whatever they need to use it for. So it is really interesting because it sounds like the meat and poultry industry, some of the food and bev stuff is all kind of going through those same motions right now. They're just a little bit further behind, a little bit behind the municipal world, right? Where, because I think those regulations are imposed on the municipalities, it seems like before those private industries. So they have to like comply with all this total nitrogen, total phosphorus stuff a little before those, those industries. But it's really fascinating to hear that it, there's such a mirror <laughs> between the two of them. Well, it's good to hear that they're all actually rowing the same in the same direction, right? You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's not uh, obviously when regulators tell you tell you you've got to do something, you're gonna do everything you can to do it. But <laughs> but but I you know I will say too again going back to what I said earlier, I think um, I think sometimes the food industry gets a bad rap as a bunch of uh, you know if you think back to the old yellow journalism political mm -hmm. cartoons you know they're they're a bunch of greedy monopoly manager you know monopoly guys and they don't care about anything but I, when it comes to sustainability i think the food and beverage industry at least um has always had that in mind because again if you want to take the greedy angle they've been greedy about their bottom lines and they know that sustainability and environmental sustainability does save them money in the long run. It's just, mm -hmm. you know, a matter of can they can they meet the regulations that are there or exceed them? A lot of a lot of companies do. And it does none of these companies any good to destroy the land and mm -hmm. and whatnot. Cause then where are you going to grow these plants and grow the feed for the animals? And even if you have the animals in a barn versus free range pasture, blah, blah, blah you still need to be able to maintain the land so that mm -hmm. you can maintain the food supply. We can't just burn through everything. So, so it's, it's always interesting. And I always try to remind people of that. It's like, whether you think it's a factory farm because it's huge, doesn't mean it's owned by, you know, a factory type of a company it's owned by, you know, Jim and Jane, the farmers, <laughs> fifth generation, they're just contracted by big companies. So it does them no good to ruin it. Mm -hmm. Their family farm, it, it, otherwise they're out of business. And it does the processors no good to, you know, ruin the ruin the environment around their plants or drain all the wastewater or drain all the water, ruin the mm -hmm. water supply. It doesn't. And it's just, you know, it's always interesting to read and hear about a lot of that stuff. And I wish people understood, understood it a little bit better. Uh, I think, I think we're getting there uh, mm -hmm. as, as a society, 
uh, here we go. I'm on my society high horse now, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's been very interesting to see. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah. 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 Like you said, if money is the motivator, then you, like you have to maintain your, your processes, you have to maintain the health and safety of your land in order to maintain your business environment so that you can make money. Um, if that's the end goal motivator, there are, um, there are a lot of other things that have to be done to reach that goal. But anyway, thanks so much, Andy. I really appreciate it. I feel like I learned a tremendous amount from you today about all, all things meat and poultry and food processing and a lot of the different trends that are going on in your in your marketplace. And it's very, very illuminating to feel like I held up a mirror or you held up a mirror to me. <laughs> a lot of the same trends that are going on in both places. Yeah, it, it's uh it's a very interesting area of the food processing industry. That's for sure. You know, and it's, uh, it's always a pleasure to talk about those things with someone who knows much more about it than I do. So hopefully <laughs> what you learned hopefully was accurate. No, <laughs> no, but, it, but it's, but it's always nice to, to, um, to be able to talk about, you know, some of the good things of food, and beverage industry are doing and i think in many cases this is one of them you know and Mm -hmm. and i appreciate uh being able to talk lord knows i uh i love to talk and especially talk about the industry so hopefully uh hopefully your listeners um learned a little bit as well Thank you so much, Andy, for that conversation. It was really nice to talk to you, and I always enjoy our conversations and hearing about some of those overlaps of trends and things that are going on in in your industry and ours. I just a very very fun time chatting with you. So thank you for your time. Uh, on to housekeeping for WWD, you can nominate now for the Wastewater Digest Young Pros on our website at wwdmag.com/young-pros-nomination. Submit for yourself, a friend, or a colleague. Nominations are due by March 31st, 2024, and we will feature five people in an upcoming issue of Wastewater Digest from those nominations. Be sure also to read the qualifications as they have changed this year. We traditionally have only done 40 years old and younger, but this year we added a stipulation that if you have 10 years of experience or less, regardless of that age, you can also qualify. So more people should be able to qualify now, and it's less focused on age and more focused on experience. For Waterworld, the same is true, only our deadline is earlier in March, and the URL is waterworld.com slash young pros. You can also sign up for our weekly newsletter, which includes top performing articles and industry news by clicking subscribe in the top nav bar. And to check out a list of the top 10 episodes of Talking Underwater 2023, use the link in the show notes. And for Stormwater Solutions, our young pros and industry icon nominations are open. Same rules apply for our young pros, uh, 40 years of age or younger, or 10 or less years of experience. Um, for Industry Icon, you can nominate yourself, a colleague. Um, it's it's really open. And all nominations are due February 23rd. You can find the nomination forms at the link www.stormwater.com nominations. And with that, don't forget to like, subscribe, share on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can also reach us at talkingunderwater at endeavorb2b.com to share your thoughts. And don't forget to follow us on X at TUW Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.